I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. We resume our study of uh, this uh, sermonic uh, letter uh, this morning. We've been uh, looking at it since uh, this letter since fall. It's called a sermonic letter. It is a letter, although it doesn't have characteristics of uh, uh, some characteristics of a letter. In other words, it doesn't have uh, an address, you know, dear whoever, uh, nor does it have a, a signature at the end so that we are actually not clear as to who the author is. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we know that it was a letter. It was sent to uh, a group of Jewish believers likely living in Jerusalem and, uh, and uh, uh, in order to uh, fortify them in their faith and uh, us as well. Uh, for those of you who are relatively new, uh, just so that you are aware, when we began this series, uh, as we did in our previous series in Romans, uh, we issued a, a challenge that we think is beneficial to people in the church. Uh, that is that we encourage you to read through the letter of Hebrews, uh, or the book of Hebrews, however you want to call it, um, one time per month for every month that we are studying it. So in other words, uh, you would read through it in, in March, and we'll be uh, in it uh, at least uh, briefly in April, although with Easter and others, we'll I'll be looking at other things. Read it in April, uh, and then we'll be taking a break for the summer. You're free to read it, but that's not part of the challenge. We'll be picking up again uh, in September, and you can read it in September and October and, and November. But read through once per month, which is only uh, you know four, uh, a few chapters, four chapters uh, per week, uh, that you would read through that each of those months, reading it through, and each time you read through, you will find that you gain uh, that things that you had not before. It is a wonderful way of understanding and learning God's Word. Also, just as an invitation is on the table uh, right up against the glass to the library, uh, we have scripture uh, journals for the book of Hebrews that you are welcome to pick up. We, we ask for, a, I don't remember what it is, but a, a donation, but it's an ask. So if you don't have it, that's okay. You can take that. And you are able to put notes, whether it's during the, the time that we're studying it together or through your own readings, uh, under parallel to the, uh, to the, um, to the passage, uh, and so that it's a way of, of also studying and learning and hearing what God would teach us. This morning we focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 7, the first few verses, uh, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In this case, in the one case, the tithes are received by uh, mortal men, uh, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor 
when Melchizedek met him. Uh, the word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we, we come with thanksgiving that you, who are a living and true God, who spoke all things into creation and even rested from your creation, have conti continued to speak. You've spoken through your word, through the prophets, those who recorded this word for us. And you continue to speak as your spirit applies this, this truth, the truth of your revelation, of your plan of redemption, and illuminates it and grants us understanding. I pray, Lord, that as we come, we would come as those who are hungering to hear from you. And that we would have our hearts and our minds opened by your spirit. The minds would be opened that you, by your spirit, may grant us understanding of this, your word, and how it fits with your plan of redemption and how it fits into our lives. And that you would open our hearts that we would receive this word, not merely as intellectual information, but as the words of life that not only inform us, but that form us that not only our minds, but our whole lives would be shaped by your word. I open our hearts that we may delight in it, that as we hear these words, we know that we are hearing your voice. So, Lord, we pray you would speak to us. We pray that by our hearts and minds being open to you, that we would be honoring you as you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. Bless this reading and this study, this time we spend in the word, your glory and our good. We pray this in the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. Once again, we, we meet this relatively obscure Old Testament figure, the man named Melchizedek. Now, if you were one who was wondering, who is this guy? You're not alone. As one theologian rather crassly put it, who the heck is Melchizedek? And then he began to ask, and why should I even care? What difference does it make? Why knowing, does knowing this obscure Old Testament priest have an impact on my life? How should this shape the way that I live my life in this world that we have to live in today? And it's an understandable question. And because Melchizedek is such an obscure figure in the scriptures. Now, if you've ever been to a movie where a seemingly insignificant character is introduced early on and then you don't see him for a while, but as the plot unfolds and towards the end of the story, you realize that person is significant to understanding the way that the whole, uh, whole storyline unfolds, that's Melchizedek. Uh, we meet him first in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, I'll invite you to turn there with me because we'll, we'll look at all the verses of him uh, in, in Genesis. Uh, that's three verses, so for those of you who are sweating. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 14 uh, is where he is first introduced to us and where, other than the book of Hebrews, the most extensive uh, information is given about him. Now, as you're turning there, helpful to get some of the context of how Melchizedek comes on the scene because the passage is really not about Melchizedek. It's really part of the relationship of Abraham. God had called Abraham from among the nations and promised to bless him and make him a blessing to the nations. It would be through Abraham that he would create the nation of Israel. It would be through Abraham and through Israel that he would bring the promised Messiah who would redeem the world and fix all the problems that our forefathers have made 
uh, things that we continue to uh, pile upon. Now, living at that time, Abraham had been called. He left as God had called him to leave the place where he was from and to go to the place that God said he would show him, even though he didn't tell him where he was going in the first place. And at this point in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham seems to have settled in and actually begun to prosper uh, just as God had promised him as he lived and was kind of reigning over his own little village, his own, his own, own people, and somewhere in, in the Middle East. Now, one of the things that's important to understand that in Genesis, uh, as we read about life at this time, is people tended to live in, in, in communities, in, in cities, and in those cities, they didn't really have mayors, they had kings, somebody who was a king over each of the little communities. And so each little area uh, was a kingdom and had somebody reigning over it. And just like any other small area, some of these kings liked one another better than others. They liked some, they didn't like others, some, you know, vice versa. Sometimes they coexisted, sometimes they uh, actually collaborated, and sometimes they were in conflict with one another. Now, living in one of these cities, the city of Sodom, which was pre it getting all of the bad PR, uh, was Abraham's son, uh, nephew, the, the son of his, his brother, uh, his name is Lot. He'd moved in and was uh, living uh, peacefully and, and flourishing in the, in the, in the city of, um, of Sodom. Uh, and the city of Sodom, along with Gomorrah, again, without yet having the, the bad PR that uh, would later come to them, and, and a few of the other communities they, they were living, at, and there were some of the other kings, other towns that were at odds with them at war. These other kings came in, and they raided these communities, and they took as plunder not only goods and, and money, uh, but they took people, women, children, and some of the men. And among the men who was taken... Uh, was Abram's nephew, Lot. Now, at this point, I can't help but read this and think of Liam Neeson in the role of Abraham. He was living peacefully, trying to stay out of all the hostilities, but you shouldn't have taken my nephew. And now he introduces the first Israeli reconnaissance mission in all of history. He sides together with the king of Sodom and Gomorrah with some of the other ones, and they went in and they attacked the, uh, those who, the raiding parties, the raiding villages. They had victory over them, they conquered them, and they took back everything that had been taken from them and brought back Lot as well. And it's after this victory that this passage we're going to look at in verse 17 in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 14 uh, it takes place. They had already come back uh, after their victory, have taken the spoils, and here's what we read in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of, of Kedarlaomer and the, the kings who were with him, those were the, the kings that had raided and then uh, got uh, beaten up by Abram. Uh, after uh, returning from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, who was not part of the fight, but Melchizedek, king, uh, king of Salem, no, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham and said, "Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is everything that we have in the narratives of the Old Testament about this obscure figure, Melchizedek. He kind of pops out of nowhere, shows up after the victory, uh, and, um, and blesses a Abraham. 
Nowhere else uh, do we find him uh, in the Old Testament, with the one exception of he is mentioned in, in, in Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It's also the psalm that is most frequently quoted in, in the New Testament. But in Psalm 110, uh, verse 4, a prophecy of the Messiah, of, the, of the, the, the priest that God would send, is that you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's it. That's all that we have in all of the Old Testament about this figure. Uh, the details of how he interacted with Abraham here in this passage in Genesis. And then we're told at that point that he was a priest of the Most High God. And that, uh, which is also we need to take note, is taking place before the formation of Israel as a nation. Which therefore is, to, he's a priest before there is a priesthood uh, that is established of the tribes of Israel, particularly the, the Levites, who are one of the 12 tribes who were designated to be a priest um, between God and the other tribes. That would come later. Melchizedek was a, a priest even before there was an Israel. And the one who was promised to come. The Messiah, who God would raise up, would be a priest in that order, in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't come through uh, the line of the Levites, through the line of Aaron, through the line of Abraham. He would be born in the line of Abraham, but he wasn't in the priestly line of Abraham. His priesthood would be like this of Melchizedek, that God, somewhere, somewhere in time, had appointed him. Because the scripture tells us nobody decides for themselves that they're going to be a priest. To be a priest is a calling of God, an appointment of God. And so this person had been made a priest even before the plan of God's redemption really began to take traction, at least so far as we're able to tell. Now, that may challenge the way that some of us think. Because when we think about these ancient days in antiquity and all the peoples as they were rebelling against God and the polytheism that was so pro uh, prominent that we read about with all the you know, the, the Isites uh, from, and I won't begin to give them, but as you read through the, all the, the people groups that uh, you find in, in, listed in the book of Genesis, and almost all of them were worshiping foreign gods and multiple gods and, and were polytheistic, we get this idea, many of us have this idea that everybody was a pagan and was polytheistic. I mean, even Abraham was called from a, a pagan background. But the reality is not everybody was pagan. Well, God the one true God had created man and had related to him, even as man uh, rebelled and up and to the point of, of, of Noah, who was um, unique in his uh, um, faithfulness to God, despite the fact that he was uh, broken, frail, like you and me. Uh, but he had trusted God, he honored God, he believed God, he was worshiped the, the one true God, and God wiped out everything. Started out with this guy who was uh, and, and the family of the one. And then all of a sudden people got messed up again because the sin issue was, was still the same. And people began chasing after other gods and making up new ones. And, 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 and so many people were polytheistic. We get the idea that that was everybody. But the reality is God and his preservation, there was always a people. There was always a people from the, the line of, of Noah who were faithful to the one true God, who believed in the one true God. And this guy apparently was part of that line and had been appointed a priest of the, the one true God. Now, who is this guy? Well, the writer of Hebrews, what he does is he extracts from what seems to be relatively in uh, uh, little, little information and, and then begins to paint a, a, a picture for us of the significance of this person. 
And he tells us a couple of things, and, and he harps on, on two things in particular. First is his name. His name, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is translated, or it means literally, he is the king of righteousness. And then it's pointed out that he is the king of Salem. And Salem is the precursor, almost all scholars, whether they are um, conservative scholars or liberal scholars, almost all of them are, are in agreement that Salem is kind of the, the forerunner is of Jerusalem. Um, Salem was the city, and then Jerusalem kind of became the, the new name uh, of the city as, as it evolved over time. Um, but he was the, the king of Salem. That was his village. And, and the word Salem is shalom in the Hebrew. He is the king of shalom. He is the king of peace. And, and so this uh, Melchizedek, who we don't know a whole lot about, we do know this. We know something about his character because he's the king of righteousness. That's his name, but it's also reflective of his character. And he is the, the king of, of peace. Two titles. Then in our minds, as we look back over the Old Testament, as we look back over the scriptures, that we rightly ascribe to Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. He is the righteousness of God that was manifest here in the flesh on earth. And he is also our, our peace. He's the one who came in order that he would make peace between God and man, that those who belong to him, thou are reconciled to God and have peace. This Melchizedek embodied the two titles that belong to Jesus Christ. Now, in par partly because of that, and also because as the writer of Hebrews uh, also brings out, he had no beginning and end. He has no father or mother. He has no genealogy is the, is the way that, that he writes this. Many Christians and, and many Bible scholars have uh, over the time developed the idea that this is Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Jesus. In other words, before Jesus was born in the flesh, he manifests himself in the presence, coming out of seeming out of nowhere, manifests himself, blessed Abraham, and then disappears uh, again into, into the scene. And that's a view that I've had a lot of sympathy for, for for a long time. On the other hand, most Bible scholars would say that this is a historic person. This is a person that did have mother and father. They're just not included in the record of Genesis, which is unusual when somebody of significance in an Old Testament story. Usually you get somebody who's introduced and you know that they're important and you know that they're significant. And so therefore, here's Melchizedek, son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so. And you get at least a couple of generations of line to establish them. But God in his providence, God in his wisdom, for whatever his reason, chose not to inspire Moses to include the genealogy of Melchizedek in, uh, in the accounts of Genesis, which just kind of springs him into the story and then uh, shows the blessing and then has him disappear and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, to, in, in drawing out, at least from a literary standpoint, he didn't seem to have a beginning, he doesn't have an end, he doesn't have a genealogy to which he is appealed to. And so there are different views. The majority of people believe that he was actually a historic person, that he would be literally, or literarily, without father and mother. Not literally without father and mother. And I'll leave it to you to decide where you fall on that, because uh, if you ask me, uh, one day I will tell you one thing, and another day I will tell you another thing as far as where I stand as far as it goes. But neither of that matters. I mean, while taking the position uh, may be beneficial in some ways, what all scholars are in agreement is, is that Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ that we find in the Old Scripture. 
In other words, the characteristics that he embodies are a foreshadowing of the one that God would send. And so whether he was Christ himself that was incarnated, showed up for a short time, blessed Abraham, and then disappeared until he would be born a couple thousand years later, or whether he was a human man who truly had genealogy that's just not recorded here, and the writer of Hebrews takes a, a literary license to kind of bring this out. He's, he's not categorically saying. And, and those scholars who would say that he was a real man, they would harp particularly on, on verse 3, where it says um, that he resembles the Son of God, or some translations would say he was made like the Son of God. In other words, that it is not Jesus who is following after the pattern of Melchizedek, truly, even though that's the way that we would tend to see it. But Melchizedek was made the pattern of the Son. Now, Jesus might have been born thousands of years later, but his character, being God, existed before there was time. And so Melchizedek could be made after him. He developed and cultivated the characteristics that we associate with Jesus. But he was the one that was made like the Son of God. And if he was made like the Son of God, then they would say, well, then he must not have been the Son of God. Uh, because something that's like is not the same as something that is. But either way, as, as a type of Christ in Melchizedek, we see certain characteristics that would be appealed to much later. That when Jesus came on the scene, that the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself would appeal to saying, look, did you see the prophecies? And, and there are throughout the Old Testament different types, perhaps the most prominent of which is, is David. We're told that the, that, that the Messiah would be the, the greater David. He would be a king likened to David. And that's a, a type. David himself was a historic man, a flawed historic man. Great characteristics that the Bible highlights, but there's also brokenness, just like you and me, that shows us why we can't trust in the David, that we need somebody who's like David, but better than David. And the same seems to be here true. These characteristics, few as they are, that we have about Melchizedek, we see also later embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And Melchizedek, whether it is Jesus pre-incarnate, or Melchizedek, who is merely the type of Christ, is pointing us to the one who would come, that would be God's gift, who would bless us. That's who Melchizedek is, so far as we have in the scriptures. But it begs the other question. What does it matter? Why should we even care? I mean, we have prepared everybody now to go on the TV show, the Bible Trivia, and you can answer this question, who is Melchizedek? But that's not the reason that we study the Scriptures. The scriptures bring light. The Scriptures have a reason, and, and, and they not only enlighten us, but they, they shape us. And so what does knowing about this obscure Old Testament figure, not only us, but the original readers, what, what difference would it make in, in their lives? It's important to remember the reason that the author of Hebrews was writing this letter in the first place. He was writing to a group of Jewish believers, likely living in Jerusalem, who were living in topsy-turvy times. The world was chaotic all around them. This particular group of people was experiencing oppression because of their being followers of Jesus Christ. And they also experienced rejection from the culture at large because, uh, from a hereditary standpoint, they were also Jewish. They'd grown up Jewish, grown up in the synagogue, grown up with all of the, 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 the uh, sacrificial system, everything that was embodied in Judaism. 
They'd grown up with that, but then they'd also heard the message of Jesus Christ. They recognized that he was the one that was the promised Messiah, and they had trusted in him, and they began worshiping him. But because things were not going the way that they thought, they weren't experiencing the peace in their circumstances that they thought they would get if they gave their lives uh, to God who had come in the flesh. They were beginning to ask questions. They were tempted to return back to what they knew because it was tried and true for thousands of years. God had blessed his people. We're going to go back to the, to the rituals and the sacrificial system. But the sacrifices were never sufficient. And the writer of Hebrews, being God's agent, is wanting to help them to recognize going back and performing mere religion is never going to be the answer the only hope that they have, the only hope that anyone has, is to cling to Jesus Christ. To give an idea of how topsy-turvy the times were, most or many of the uh, conservative scholars will date this uh, writing of this letter to just two years prior to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. Before something like that happens, you know that there's chaos before something so significant would be wiped out and destroyed. But imagine these people who were thinking, okay, the answer to the lack of peace that I'm feeling in the external environment is to go back to this, and then all of a sudden to have the temple torn down, all of their hope would be gone. Because when we put our hope in anything other than God, and our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, ultimately we find ourselves disappointed. It wasn't that they didn't have reason for disappointment. It wasn't that they had reason to not, they, they, they certainly had reason to feel frustrated and, and reason to have questions as to what God was doing around them as well as what was going on in them. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to people in that circumstance. And what he's doing through bringing up Melchizedek is he is showing them the superiority of Jesus Christ to what they were tempted to return to. And he was showing them the superiority of Jesus Christ to what they were wanting to return to by showing the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham because the system they were going to turn to came out of Abraham. The Levites, tribe of Israel, flowed from Abraham. It's not that they were not God's people, but that Jesus is even greater than what God had given. And so he points to this Melchizedek and this encounter that he had with Abraham and shows us that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and the blessing always comes from the greater. The one who is lesser is the one who is blessed by the one who is greater. This Abraham, uh, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils the tithe of the spoils as a way of honoring this priest that had come from God. Therefore, it was obvious that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, even though Abraham was the one, Scripture says, the writer of Hebrews says, or the one that has all the promises. God had promised him that he was going to bless him, and through him he was going to bless the nations, but Melchizedek was even greater. So if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the priesthood, then, Abraham, then Melchizedek is greater than this priesthood. And if Jesus is, is, is like Melchizedek, then Jesus is greater than the priesthood 
and the religion to which they wanted to return. I know that can be somewhat dizzying. I hope somewhere in there you can put those pieces together. But the reason that the writer of Hebrews is appealing to this is that he is wanting to draw the people back to cling to Jesus. He's wanting to draw them back so that they know and they would rest their hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone because Jesus is greater. Jesus is God's gift. Jesus is God himself. Therefore, he is the only hope. Now, for us, as we look at this passage, why does this matter? As the writer of Hebrews and God through the writer of Hebrews is inviting to us to relate to Jesus in the same way that Abraham related to Melchizedek, that we would put our hope and our trust in him. The first thing that we, we see in that is that we relate to him in the nature of who he is. He is the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. There's an interesting phrase here in Hebrews uh, 7 verse 2. It's easy to overlook, but it is of significance for the way that we live our lives. In the middle of verse 2, the writer says this. He, meaning Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So the writer is saying, first of all, he's the king of righteousness, and then second, he is king of peace. Now, sometimes in the scriptures, things, you know, it would be easy to kind of overstate this, except that this is an illustration of a very real principle by which we live our lives. As we are to relate to Jesus in the way that Abram related to Melchizedek, we relate to him first as the king of righteousness, and then second to him being king of righteousness, we relate to him as the king of peace. Many, many, many people want the peace of God in their lives. And it's understandable why we would want the peace of God in our lives. We, we should want the, the peace of God in our lives. It is a wonderful thing to know that God is not uh, against us, that he is for us, and that he, in the person of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit, he is not only for us, but he is with us and will never forsake us. It's, it's a wonderful thing to have a, a clean slate before God because our sins have been forgiven. And because we have the clean slate and we are forgiven on the basis of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have a clean conscience before God, even though none of us completely measures up to what we ought to do or even what we desire to do. It's an incredibly freeing feeling to know that we don't have to hide parts of our lives, as if we could, from God the way that we hide from one another. You know, those parts that we don't want other people to know, so we hide them behind a veil because we don't want people to see things that we know would be unbecoming or we fear would get us rejected. We don't have to do that with God. God already knows everything about us. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for those who were ungodly to redeem a people and then becoming his people, then God is at work, cleaning us up, making us more like Christ. It's incredibly freeing to know that it's not based on our performance, but it's based on uh, God's grace. And it is also an incredibly comforting thing to know that there's not one thing that is going to happen to you today or any day of your life that has not first passed through the sovereign hands of he who created all things by speaking him into existence and who is now taking everything that is happening to us, including things that we would consider even our tragedy, and he's working them all together for his glory and for our good as we are called to him. We love him and are called according to his purpose. 
There's nothing that is happening that hasn't first passed through God's hands. Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes we're experiencing consequences, even for our own sin. But the scripture even reminds us of that. That should draw us even closer because it's only the one who is not a true child of God that God doesn't discipline. That it is the discipline that God enacts in our lives to shape us that is a demonstration that we are sons and daughters of God. The discipline is because of his love for us, not because he's now angry and against us. And when we know those things, we have the peace of God. It's all of those things together give us that sense of peace. It's what we all long for. We want that peace. The anxiety and the problems and the difficulties are gone. And then the warmth, it's not just the absence, but the, the warmth of the presence of God. That is the peace of God that we are promised and that we all long for. But one of the things that we need to recognize is this, is that the peace of God begins, is rooted in the righteousness of God. We only experience the peace of God when we begin with the righteousness of God. We only experience the king of peace when we recognize the king of righteousness. Righteousness is defined in this way. Right faith propelling to right action. It's important to know because that's the righteousness that we are called to live, but that definition also applies to God himself. People get confused about that. They think righteousness is merely good deeds. Well, good deeds are good deeds, and I'd rather live with a neighbor that does good deeds than one who doesn't do good deeds. But it is not righteousness unless it is faith of, in what God has done and who God is that propels somebody to do those good deeds. That and that alone is considered righteousness. Now, believing right things about God and doing nothing, we're told by James, is dead. It's a dead faith. You can believe right things about God. You can know right things about God. But if that doesn't propel you, then your faith is dead. It is of no benefit to anybody whatsoever. Righteousness is right belief propelling to right action. That is true of us, and it is also true of God. Now, with that understanding, we know this. The ultimate expression of the righteousness of God occurred on the cross. See, God had a right understanding of his own holiness and a right understanding of the condition that we plunged ourselves into in sin and rebellion against him. And aware that we couldn't save ourselves from that, but even as we try, we dig ourselves more and more deeper into that hole. God recognized that there was a need for a rescue mission, and he sent his own son in order to redeem a people who had rebelled against him. And he came in the flesh like one of us. He lived the perfect life. And then he died on the cross, paying the penalty for the sins of the people of God. Those who God would grant a gift of faith to believe in what he has done. And then he rose again for our hope and for our salvation. That is the ultimate expression of the righteousness of God. It's not the only one, but that is the ultimate expression because it's the reflection of God's character, his love, not his need. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. He doesn't need anybody. But he loved and to love, he redeemed. And to redeem, he paid a price. His belief, his right understanding of reality of himself and our condition propelled him to act and to come in the person of Jesus, to die on the cross, the king of righteousness, who brings peace. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is our righteousness. And what that means is this, that he is perfect. His right faith leads him to be righteous in every way. 
And we are countless as we trust in him. Therefore, he is our righteousness. By faith, we are declared righteous. We're credited with his righteousness. And so we, recognizing the righteousness of God first, have peace with God because we believe in what God has done. And we continue to experience the peace of God because we trust in what God has accomplished once for all in the person of Jesus on the cross. That's what it means that Christ is our righteousness. He's not the ticket in. He's not the example, not the model. We cling to him always. He empowers us to more and more become like him. But Christ is our peace because he paid the price. He bore the wrath of God at war against our sin. And the penalty that was upon him purchased us peace. Peace with God. And so as we draw near to Jesus, because we recognize that he is superior to any expression of religion, we come in faith remembering first that we have peace with God when we remember the righteousness of God. The king of righteousness comes before the prince of the king of peace. Now, practically, we can live that out in other ways. We continue to relate in the same way uh, to uh, to, to uh, Jesus as, as Abraham related to Melchizedek. And as we look back, both in the book of Genesis and in what the writer of Hebrews extracts from that, we, we see a couple of things. I just want to highlight three things. I'm not going to in any way be able to be exhaustive on those. But we, we see first and foremost... In, in the book of Genesis, the writer of Hebrews really doesn't uh, bring it specifically in, in this part of the passage. That we receive from Jesus when we let him serve us. We see that first and foremost in the fact that Melchizedek brought communion, essentially, to Abraham. It is not insignificant that this guy brought the two elements that later would participate, that Jesus would identify himself with when he established the Lord's Supper for us to continually be re-rooted in the faith and renewed in his, in his covenant. Because you remember back in Genesis chapter 14, when the first thing it says is this Melchizedek came, he brought bread and wine. Now, he doesn't identify with it the way that Jesus would later on, and he didn't bring it necessarily for some religious uh, activity. There was no Passover yet because there was no Israel yet, So, uh, but he brought them out for probably practical reasons. He brought the bread. Why? Because they just got back from a fight and they needed bread. Bread is necessary for life. He brought the wine because it's a celebration. And, and so it was a time of joy. He brings these things. And yet in God's providence, these are the very elements that later on would be given to you and to me to constantly remember what Jesus Christ has done, that Jesus Christ has served us. And so what... I would have you to do is to remember, particularly whenever we come to the table, but not exclusively at that time, that when we partake of the table, we are just the vessels that are passing those things on. Ultimately, we are being served by Jesus because we're reminded of how Jesus served us. Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to offer his life as a ransom for many. And ultimately, he served us by laying down his life, freeing us. We're told to remember that when we come to that table. And Jesus, who is serving us and is serving our faith when we come to that table. But we also remember the purpose for which Jesus came. And we are served by him 
Religion says we serve God and maybe something will be good. Christianity says God serves us because we can't help ourselves. But having been served by God, now we are freed and empowered and able to serve other people. It's just another expression, a practical dimension of recognizing the king of righteousness, who is also the king of peace. The second way in which we can practically relate to Jesus in the same way that uh, Abraham related to Melchizedek, we see in the issue of the tithe. Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, we're told, of everything that he brought back, a tenth of what he had. The, the literal Hebrew says from in, in, uh, in Genesis, is he took off the top of the heap. In other words, he gave the first fruits, as, as said elsewhere. He gave what he had. He didn't wait and figure out what he had left over, but he gave first and foremost of the resources, every, the things that he had had, uh, to God, uh, or in this case, uh, to, to Melchizedek. He gave it to Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. It was a way of honoring Melchizedek by recognizing his priesthood, but ultimately it was an expression of faithfulness to God. And the writer of Hebrews goes in great detail, because pretty much verses 4 through 10, all is explaining the whole issue of this, this tithe thing. Uh, Abraham gave the tenth and the relationship of the priesthood, and I'll let Camper explain all the priesthood stuff next week to you. Uh, but, um, but, but we see something very practical that is taking place here. The word tithe literally means one-tenth. And we see this practice of giving to God through his priest in order to honor God and honor the priest that actually predates the law. Now, we're not legalistic here in terms of the issue of the tithe. Give 10% and 10% of the storehouse and 10% before you pay your taxes. There are a variety of views, biblical views, that Christians hold, not only throughout Christendom, but even within our church, as to the way that we uh, should relate to the tithe and deal with the issue of our giving to God. But I do want you to see this, is for those who would say, well, I don't need to consider the tithe because we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Well, the practice of the tithe predates the law. Because the issue of the tithe is not a matter of keeping the law, it's a matter of relating to God. First and foremost. You see, we relate to God through the issue of the giving of the tithe or whatever proportion of giving that somebody chooses to give. Not first and foremost in order to make sure that we meet a budget for a church, although certainly the church functions just as the priesthood in Israel functioned through the gifts of the people. Primary purpose is not to meet the budget of the church, although I will say that we have been very beneficial, benefited, and we are blessed because of the tremendous generosity of many of the people in this church. But the primary purpose is not to make sure that we have our budget. The primary purpose is for each individual to bring their gift, and they bring their gift to essentially to the storehouse, which is the place because God is because the church itself becomes, or the storehouse becomes the uh, the hands to receive it on God's behalf. But the purpose of the giving is to honor the one to whom we give and also becomes a barometer of our ability or where we are in trusting God in that given moment. And, and so just using the tie, the 10% as the standard for the sake of the argument at the moment. So if I was to give 10% of all of my income, then I have 90% left to live on. I honor God with 10%. 10% is not insignificant. But then I am saying, Lord, I'm going to trust that you're going to enable me to live on the other 90%. Now, there's some people who are so 
blessed by this. They decide the reason they're not going to follow the rule of the tithe is because the tithe is too limiting. Tithe is only 10%. They want to give more. And so, Lord, I, I've been blessed even as I go on 10%, so let me give 12, let me give 15, let me give 20. And there are some people who have given, even instead of the J.C. Penney, who probably had more cash, expendable cash than I do, but he lived, he tithed 90% and lived off the 10. So it's one of the reasons why we'll never be legalistic about the tithe is because the tithe is too limiting because some of you want to do more and we're willing to receive it. And the tithes that you give here, not just about our salaries and bonuses and vacations, it's about the ministries, the mission that we take place. A lot of the money that, we that comes in here, we invest in mission uh, and church planting and, and other things. And so it, the money isn't just here as if we're just club that needs the facilities to be maintained, but it is an individual expression to God that benefits the whole community and then is expressed through mission. But each of us has an opportunity as we determine in our hearts what it is we're going to give to God how much we're going to honor him and how much we are able to trust him, that he's still going to meet our needs, even if we do out without this particular amount of our income. And we relate to God, we honor God when we make the practice of tithing or giving to him part of our regular routine. And finally, I'm going to say this, is that we relate to God, we relate to Jesus the same way that Abraham related uh, to um, Melchizedek, when we are willing and able to receive his blessing. Now, when you receive Jesus Christ, every blessing that God promised to those who belong to him is yours. But the reality is some of us don't know it, and some of us find it hard to believe. And so therefore, while it is ours, we don't receive it. Abraham blessed by God as he was, was willing to receive the blessing of Melchizedek. And you, being a child of God, I want to encourage to receive the blessing that is Jesus Christ. The things that make it difficult for us are all of the external things that are going around us and then how we relate to that internally. Things are difficult. Things are hard. And then I look at my own life and realize how flawed and how much I fail Therefore, certain things that God has said about me, I find it difficult to emotionally and to mentally process and to accept. And so God has given the blessing, and yet I am in some sense either rejecting or refusing to, uh, to, to take as my own. But by receiving the blessing from Jesus Christ is to recognize and to constantly remember you are who he says you are. Your identity is in Christ, and therefore you are everything that a child of God is to be. And part of that is you are a work in process. You are no less a child when you are at stage one than you are at stage five. But you are a child of God. You are the beloved of God. You are valued. You are important. You matter to God. And we need to accept that blessing. It is freeing. It is empowering. It is contagious. It is life-shaping. This is the promise that comes from him who is the greater Melchizedek to all who believe. And so I pray now we know who this Melchizedek guy is. 
we have some idea of why it matters. I pray that we would experience the peace of his blessing because we know that it's rooted not in our righteousness, but in his own righteousness. The king of peace is the king of righteousness. Father, bless us, we pray, not only with knowledge in the head, but in the heart. Let us receive what you have said. Let us dwell upon it. Let us shape our hearts, our hopes, and our lives upon it. That we may give you thanks, live lives of freedom and joy and peace to your glory and honor. This we pray with great confidence, for it is your promise to your people. In Christ, amen.